Narcy read us that wonderful passage as we're marching our way right to the end. It may shock you to know that we've got one more week of Thessalonians and we're done. That's it. You're going to miss it, aren't you? Just be honest, you're going to miss it. We can start back over at chapter 1 of 1 Thessalonians if you want to. But the, uh, this, this passage that she, she read us begins with the word but, B-U-T. You guys know from, you know, English class that the word but, it, it serves to contrast what is currently being said to what was stated before. Sometimes, just for an example of this, when I lean in for a kiss, my wife will say, honey, I love you. And I, I like that. I, it makes me feel all good inside. But then she'll say, but you could really use a tic-tac. Her devotion to me is total. I have no doubt of that. And yet, my breath stinks. And this presents me with a reality that must be addressed before we proceed. Both facts, both facts, she loves me and my breath stinks. Both facts are absolutely true. Absolutely true. But... One is in contrast to the other. She loves me, but something is hindering her enjoyment of me at the moment. And all the wives in the house said, Amen. Take note of that, husbands. And I do have a, a box of Tic Tacs up here if you need one after service. So, um, so this, this, the, why, why did I get all in that silliness? Because this passage that I just gave you, or that Narcy read to you, it, it contrasts what Paul has said in the bulk of Second Thessalonians about the coming judgment. Now, you have to admit, if you've been with us through this whole series, that most of the material of Second Thessalonians has not been super hopeful across the board. I mean, it's talked about judgment. It's talked about a coming rebellion. It's talked about the rise of the man of lawlessness and even how right now throughout the whole age of the church that the mystery of lawlessness is already at work at the present time. And, and, and it contrasts all of that. This passage we read this morning contrasts all of that with the present reality of every encouraging thing that Paul says in today's passage. Paul said, for example, in chapter 1, that in one final act of holy justice, God will repay the wicked with affliction, inflicting holy vengeance on them, and that they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction. And in contrast to that, he says this, but we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you. Now think about that. There are these people that are marked out for destruction. They, they will be destroyed at the coming of the Lord. They will be punished. They'll be judged. They'll be condemned. They'll be damned. But this is what God says. But you, God's chosen you. That's a good contrast. Especially if you're one of the ones that's been chosen, right? Judgment awaits those who mock God's holiness, but the Thessalonians have been chosen by God because of His love for, him, for them. And this obligates 
Paul to be thankful for them for the second time. Do you remember what he said in chapter 1? He said almost the exact same words. Chapter 1, verse 3, he said, We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly. The love of every one of you for one another is increasing. Paul says this, he says, God chose you as the first fruits to be saved. Now, some translations say from the beginning. God chose you from the beginning as opposed to uh, to be the first fruits. Depending on how you translate this Greek word, this means either that the Thessalonians were the first in their city to believe or that they were among the first generation of believers in church history. I'm here to tell you it doesn't matter how you how you interpret that because no matter which Paul meant, what the, his central point is that God's choice of the Thessalonians guarantees that they will endure present trials and that their hope, because of their hope in him, they're going to escape the coming wrath. That's good news. And all of that because God loved them and because he loved them, he chose them. Paul's, or God's choice was a, was a theme that Paul often celebrated. He said this in, uh, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, you might remember, he said, For God has not destined uh, us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. If we were to um, reverse that scripture and say the exact same thing, we could say, God has destined you to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ and not to suffer wrath. He destined you for that. He chose you for it. Uh, These people, uh, the the Thessalonians and those who believe like we do, they're sustained by God's election. Now, I know, I know, this is this is like a theological landmine. I could blow myself up if I step in the wrong place this morning. Because we often trip over God's predestination in our Western freedom of choice mindset. But I want you to know, over and over, the New Testament and the Old Testament, both of them show God taking initiative and choosing those who he would claim as, as his own. Uh, if you don't believe me, what I did for you, if you go to the, online to, to, the, to the sermon today, you'll find my notes. And in the bottom of my footnotes, you'll, you'll find uh, at least a couple dozen scriptures where I pointed that out. That God, God makes these choices. In John 15, 16, Jesus actually pointed this fact out to his disciples. He said, you did not choose me. Let that sink in for a second. This is Jesus talking to his disciples. He says, you did not choose me, but I chose you. Now that may deeply offend your freedom of choice, but that is good news. And can I tell you why? Because given a thousand opportunities, heck, given a million opportunities, you never would have chosen Jesus. You never would have chosen him. You you had already decided against Jesus. You had already embraced sin. You had already cast your vote. And Jesus said, "Uh uh-uh. I choose you. I want you. You belong to me. That's good news. That shouldn't scare anybody. That's good news. I chose you. And it gets better. I appointed you. That you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide. Listen to me. Jesus is saying, because I chose you, you can guarantee, it's a guarantee of your success in the Christian life. Jesus chose you and appointed you to bear fruit. So that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. Paul continues 
laying out in this verse in Second Thessalonians a pattern for our salvation. He says that that um, you were chosen because God loved you, and then he says that you were saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. First, we were chosen by God not because of anything good we had we'd ever done. Or, or ever would do. Do you guys remember, uh, you know, picking teams in, in elementary school and they'd line everybody up and they get two captains and they go, I want this kid and I want that kid. Listen, I was always the last kid picked in elementary school. It was horrible. It was, it was humiliating. And some of you think when you hear the message of God's, uh, predestination that God is, is was in heaven with the devil by his side and saying, okay, Polk's a pretty good actor. I'll take him. Uh, Katie, she's got a beautiful voice. I'll take her. Uh, you know, and, and, and the, the God has done that. That's not at all what God did. God did, God made his choices not because of what you brought to the table, but because of what he brought to the table, which was infinite mercy, infinite grace, infinite love. We were chosen by God first, not because of anything good we did or anything good we would ever do. Ephesians 1, if you want your mind to be absolutely blown this morning, if you've never heard the scripture, Ephesians 1 says that God chose you before he even created the universe. Don't pay any attention to me, I'm just letting that sink in for a second. Before your mama, your daddy, your grandma, your grandpa ever even met before the first blade of grass sprouted through the soil, before the first star gave its first glimmer of light, the Lord Jesus Christ chose you. Before the foundations of all creation, before you were conceived, before the stars, God selected you for his own. And and we, this morning, why are we worshiping? Because we stand in awe of a God who does something like that. So first he chose us, but next the Spirit, once we did show up on the scene, he raised us. Because you see, we started as powerless, as dead sinners, dead in our trespasses and sins. And he raised us to life through this mysterious process we call regeneration. Again, this wasn't through our choosing, this wasn't through our working, but it was through God's calling and the threefold work of sanctification. First, threefold work of sanctification. First, we were sanctified or we were made holy positionally. That means that, that before the cross, we, if, if anyone were to look at us, if God was to look on us, all he would see was wickedness, evil, vileness. And, and we were made by the cross, we were made holy positionally. We were considered righteous immediately when we responded to the gospel and were saved. Some of you hang your head hoping to be holy. And I am telling you, if you are in Christ, if you are in Christ right now, God regards you as holy as you ever will be right now. Right now. You are not earning points with Jesus. And yet, the second phase of sanctification is From there, we're sanctified progressively. And that's as we yield to the Spirit's leading through obedience, daily becoming more Christ-like. So he makes us holy positionally, and then he starts making us holy externally so that we reflect the, the, the God who saved us. 
But what you need to know is, as he's making you holy externally, you're not earning anything. You're just reflecting the one you love. I I, I guarantee you, I I use Ginger as a reference point a lot, but when I met her, I had a lot of rotten, nasty habits that probably would not have been too attractive to her. And when I figured out that, that she was the one that I wanted, I started working on those nasty habits. Because I wanted to please her. That's what your holiness is now. That's what your holiness is. It doesn't mean that, that, the God, that God doesn't regard you as holy because of the cross. But it means that we are becoming holy externally so that we please the Lord. So that we cause Him to smile and we cause Him to, to, to uh, look on us and, 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 and just be pleased with what we do. The Bible says in the, in the uh, epistles of the New Testament, it says, find out what pleases the Lord. There's a reason for that because we want to be pleasing to Him. Amen? But that's not even it. There's a third phase. We've talked about this a lot, especially in this series. At the resurrection, we will be sanctified perfectly. We call this glorification, the inheritance of all who trust in Christ. Paul refers to it when he says in this passage we read this morning, to this he called you through our gospel so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now again, think about that. Paul is saying, think about, if I, if I asked you, if I just interviewed you in the foyer after the service and I said, I said, hey, Eddie, how glorious is Jesus? Eddie would say, well, it's incredibly glorious. He's filled with, with power and holiness and angels worship him and, and all of that. And, and so think about that. Think about how holy, how glorious God is. And this is what Paul says. He says, I want you to obtain the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, now compare that thought with your life last week. Compare that with your thoughts this morning on the way to church. And Paul is saying, I'm not saying that to condemn you. I'm saying that Paul is saying if you're in Christ, there is a day coming that you will obtain the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. All that garbage all those habits, all that stuff that you're fighting against as someone who wants to be sanctified to Jesus, all that stuff's going to drop off you like a rock and you will obtain the glory of the Lord Jesus. Man, that's enough to keep you going for another week. That's enough to keep you going. See, glorification, this is what I, I kind of hate about the Americanized version of the gospel. The, the Americanized version tells you that the end of the gospel, the reason that you believe the gospel is so that you can be more moral or, or so that you can escape judgment from hell. But I'm telling you, Paul is saying the end of the gospel is so that you can be glorified with Jesus. That's what he's saying. That's the end game. That's the goal of the gospel is that you would, would obtain the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. I hope that whets your appetite for the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. Choosing, sanctifying, all that is God's work. But Paul said that the Thessalonians have also been saved by their belief in the truth. And this is our part of the work. To believe, and in our believing, to be saved. But... Of those, now, now, here's another contrast. Of those who will be punished with the man of lawlessness in our verses last week, Paul says that they refused to love the truth and so be saved. 
They neglected it. They ignored it. But Paul says that they were saved, that Thessalonians were saved by their belief in the truth. And yet, belief, again, the, the kind of perversion of the American gospel, uh, belief is not something that we do once, that we check off a box, and, and then we can just go on about our lives. In fact, Paul makes that clear when he says, So then, brothers, because you've been saved by your belief in the truth, stand firm. Hold on to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. There are two prescriptions here for successful Christian living. Raise your hand if you would like to live your Christian life successfully. Raise your hand. Okay, most of you. I'm so grateful for that. Two prescriptions. First, stand firm. Second, hold on to the Word of God. Those are the two prescriptions to press through, to make it. When Paul encourages us to stand firm, Again, we see a contrast. Earlier, remember, in the same chapter, he had told the Thessalonians that, that they shouldn't, should not be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us. There was a moment in their history that Paul is addressing where the Thessalonians were anything but firm. They were anything but steadfast. Standing firm is this Greek word steko. Steko sounds delicious, doesn't it? But but that's not what it is. It's not a delicious snack. Steko is a, is a Greek word to mean stand firm. And it means to persist, to persist or to persevere or to keep one standing. But the Thessalonians were troubled. They were, they were shaken by these reports that Christ had, be, had, had returned and the, the judgment had begun and their foundations were rocking. They were shaken. Some of us, here in a place like this or some somebody online or a podcast or even in your own devotional study of the word, you hear the word of God, the word of the eternal God, the one that we've described as holy and has chose you before the foundations of the, of the earth. You hear him preach, you hear that word preached every single week, every week. You may be the loudest amen shouter in this place. And yet... Get out, turn on Fox News, CNN, talk radio, and you are shaken to your core by everything a politician says. You are rocked on Monday morning when your boss is a jerk. Your world crumbles beneath you when the doctor doesn't give you the report that you hoped to get. When you look in your bank account and are impressed by what it lacks. Your world is rocked. And yet in spite of even those very serious things, Paul says, stand firm. God's people should be steady people doesn't mean that things don't rock us here and there, but we need to... You know how we keep from being rocked is by anchoring ourselves to the rock. That's how we keep from being shaken. That's how we keep from our foundations crumbling under us. 
Philippians 1.27, so beautiful. Paul is encouraging another church there, in fact, just a few miles down the road in Philippi. And he says, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. I love that. Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come and see you or whether I'm absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm. There's that word again. Standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened. How much time do we spend trembling and Paul says, I want you to stand firm. I don't want you to be frightened by anything, in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. Our steadfastness is the outworking of a life that is worthy of the gospel. It, what do I mean by that? I mean that when, we're, when we stand firm, we're saying this gospel made a difference. It's not just my religion. It's, it's not just my Sunday morning hobby. This gospel changed me. This world can throw all kinds of bricks at my head and I'm not moving because the gospel has anchored me. That's what I mean by a life worthy of the gospel. And more than that, he said, it's a clear sign of our salvation to those who are without Christ in the world. You want to be an effective evangelist for the gospel of Jesus Christ? You stand firm in trial. You stand firm in trial and those who are crumbling around you will go, what is different? What is it with you that is so different than what's in me? But many of you, like myself, have discovered, much to our chagrin, that we're woefully incapable of standing firm in our own resolve, in our own wisdom, in our own strength, in our own morality. So Paul says... Not to stand firm in those things, resolve, wisdom, strength, morality. But he says to stand firm by holding on to the traditions that we have been taught through the word of God. That the word of God is what makes us stable. It's what makes us steady. It is our foundation. It is our anchor. Our basis for victory, if you want to live a victorious life, it can only be in what God has already declared in his word. You know who proved that? Jesus. Jesus proved it. Over and over, his life was validated by the fact that he was fulfilling New Testament prophecies. Again, look at my notes down at the bottom, footnote on that point. I, I, I listed from one book in the Bible, probably another two dozen scriptures where Jesus fulfilled prophecies. One book in the Bible. And so... Think about that. His life was validated by fulfilling what was said in the written word. And watch, you know what that means? That means that Jesus, in his ministry, overcame sickness, overcame sin, and overcame death by the word of God. Now tell me again how you think you're going to do it. He did it by the word of God. Oh, Mark, man, the devil has really been after me. Well, let me just remind you. That Jesus stood firm against the temptations of Satan in the wilderness in one way. He did it by by beginning each counterattack to the devil's attack. He would begin his counterattack with three important words. It is written. He appealed to the word of God. 
It's heartbreaking. Heartbreaking. This is not drama. It's not exaggeration. I'm speaking to you, hopefully, from as much of a pastor's heart as I can muster. It is heartbreaking when believers, especially the ones here that I care for, neglect the Bible. And then they'll they'll call us and they'll wonder why they seem to lose faith, can't seem to make sense of life in this sinful world. And I don't want to be Mr. Negative here, but let me tell you something. If you're neglecting the Bible, keeping your faith, making sense of a sinful world, utterly impossible. Can't be done. Belief in the truth of God cannot be maintained apart from clinging to God's revelation of himself and of his will in the scriptures. You have to have the scriptures. You have to have the scriptures. You have to have the Bible. You have to have it if you're going to make it in the Christian life. You can't do it. And may I also suggest, I want to be faithful in serving the scripture to you. I want to be diligent. I want to be thoughtful. But I, you cannot feast secondhand. You can't do it. You have to sit at the table and feast on the word yourself. The word, let me give you just three good reasons for that. The word is the key to transformation. I love the psalm in Psalm 119, which is all about the scriptures, by the way. But it says, how can a young man keep his way pure? That was a question I asked a lot at 15, 16 years old. How can a young man keep his way pure? Well, here's the answer. By guarding it according to your word. The word is also the key to defeating evil. Most of us are familiar with the armor of God in Ephesians 6, but remember it says take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Most importantly, in places like John 5, Luke chapter 24, Jesus states that without knowing the testimony of the written word, you can never truly know him. You can know about him. You can know facts about him. You can hear what other people say him, but you will never truly know Christ if you don't know him through his word. You can't. It's an impossibility. Religion, external morality, those can do a lot of things. They can make you a better neighbor, better citizen. But only the written word of God can introduce you to the eternal Holy One. Only the written word of God can do that. So as he's done a few times in his letters already, Paul again prays for the Thessalonian church. He says, now, may the Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish them in every good word and work. Just like he did at the end of the first letter, he puts the burden of the work on the shoulders of Jesus himself. Listen, we don't, I don't have to say this probably, but we don't pray to saints. We don't pray to dead relatives. We don't perform various religious ceremonies in order to achieve some higher spiritual plane. We look to Jesus himself. I do not need to go to St. Christopher for anything. I'm going straight to the source. Pardon me, St. Christopher, get out of my way. I'm going straight to Jesus. Proverbs 18.10, love this verse. It says, the name of the Lord is a strong tower, and the righteous man will run into it, and he will be safe. Jesus himself 
Jesus himself. We're safe because of what Jesus has done. What has he done? He's loved us. While we were still sinners, he chose us. He gave us life and righteousness. He provides for us. He protects us. He sustains us. And then Paul says he's given us eternal comfort and good hope, though we are often, often unfaithful. Anybody with me on that? Don't raise your hand. I don't want to know. But I'm assuming like me, you're often unfaithful. But even so, his mercy, as we sang this morning, endures forever and ever, even when we're unfaithful. Nothing, Romans 8, can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Not time, not death, not even our ongoing war with sin. Nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And all of this has been accomplished through one means. It's been accomplished by grace. Ephesians chapter 2. For by grace, you've been saved through faith. And this is the important part, especially for can-do, spirited American Christians. And this is not your own doing. And this is not your own doing. Praise God. It is the gift of God. It is not a result of works so that no one can boast. No bragging is appropriate among the people of God. None whatsoever. Because nothing that we have as believers has been earned. It's all been freely given in grace and in spite of ourselves. Aren't you glad? Oh my gosh, if the Lord gave grace according to our works... I would, I, you know, you, you've heard of, of uh, Dante and his, his levels of hell. I would invent new levels of hell if God was judging us uh, based on our, our, on our own righteousness. And this, see, this outpouring of grace this is what I want you to get. It doesn't end when we first believe, but it's still being poured out for two wonderful purposes, according to Paul. First, he says to comfort your hearts. Living in this world, really hard. I could I could literally start here with Tyler and go all through everybody and, and end with Dave, and every one of you could tell me stories about how life is hard, and they would be real stories, and they would be painful stories, and they'd be heartbreaking stories. Life is hard. No one's denying that. And, and it's especially hostile toward those who are standing firm in Jesus. Jesus said, if the world hated me, guess what? Surprise, it's going to hate you too. But believers are armed with all the promises of God, and those help us to endure. I love 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. It says, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence. Now watch, by which He has granted to us His precious and very great promises. So that, He gave us these promises for a reason, so that, Through them, you may become partakers of the divine nature. You know what that means? You're going to become more like Jesus by clinging to the promises. Having escaped from the corruption that's in the world because of sinful desire. God cannot lie. And so in believing his promises, we're comforted. Knowing that he's working everything together for the good of those who love him. The good of those who are called according to his purpose. Whether in suffering or success. Isn't that a great promise just in and of itself? That even when you're suffering, that cannot 
affect God's love for you. It cannot affect uh, the, 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 uh, the fact that God's working things out, even in the middle of suffering. What a deal. God is also pouring out grace. The second reason, Paul says, to establish our hearts in every good word and work, and, uh, in every good work, rather, and word. Paul told the Ephesians that he had been made a minister of the gospel by the working of God's power. Everything we do that is effective is done empowered by the Spirit of God. Although, you may have noticed, we're often really quick to take credit. But when Paul speaks of establishing our heart in good works and good words, he's not just talking about the power to be something, to be a preacher, whatever. He's, he's talking about the power to be rooted and grounded by and in good works and words. Let me demonstrate. Have you ever had the experience of recalling something that you read in the Bible or heard in a sermon at the exact moment you needed it? Ever had that happen to you? Have you ever had um, the experience where you found the will or found the energy even to do something you knew what was right or to resist something or resist doing something that you knew for certain was wrong? Well, that's what he means here that that God wants to establish you in every good word and work so that they'll, they'll produce fruit in you. Paul prays one more prayer. He says, finally, brothers, pray for us, or he makes one more request. Finally, brothers, pray for us that the word of the Lord may speed ahead and be honored as happened among you, and that we may be delivered from wicked and evil men, for not all have faith. What an honor it must have been for the Thessalonians to know not only that Paul was praying for them, but that he relied on their prayers as well. This demonstrated that they were all in this together. Now, I say this every time I stumble on a scripture like this, but I want to make the point again because you cannot know how serious I am, how serious Dave is, how serious Daryl is about this. We need you to be praying for us. Desperately, desperately need. You could could make a deal with me to give me $500 a week or pray for me, and I'm telling you, with a clean conscience, not joking, I would take the prayer. I would take the prayer, because I cannot do what God's called me to do. I cannot do the work that that God has called me to do, neither can Dave, neither can Daryl, without the prayers of the saints. Don't ever underestimate your praying for your church. Don't ever underestimate it. And it's not just for the leaders. It's, it's that all of us would be, I'm praying for you and you're praying for me and we're praying for each other. And there's this, this undergirding net of strength of our prayers for each other. And that's what we've got to uh, uh, do because we're in this together. So Paul basically asked for their prayers in three specific areas of his ministry. First, he says that the word of God would speed ahead. This, this Greek word is a metaphor for a speedy runner who wins a race. Think about that. Paul is asking that they would pray, like we did for those other churches this morning, that the gospel would win. That the gospel crosses the finish line first in a world that's filled with competing worldly philosophies against a devil who wants to trip people up in his time and ours, against hostile governments that want to stop the preaching of the gospel. He wants the truth of God to outrun lies and go swiftly into the hearts of those who are lost. Instead of just showing up to church, we should all pray for the word to go fast and win every contest. 
That's to be the heart of the people of God. Next, he prays that the word of God would be honored. It doesn't matter how fast the word travels if there isn't a heart ready to receive it. Amen. He points to their church, the the Thessalonian church, as an example of how he hopes this will work. We know from Jesus' parable of the soils that all that the word can fall on all kinds of different hearts. But Paul wants them to pray that the spirit would prepare hearts to receive the truth, to be good soil, to receive the word. We should be praying that too, that God prepares hearts to receive the word and, and grow to you know, 30, 60, 100 fold. Last, he prays for protection from persecution as well as any hindrance from ungodly human agents. He acknowledges The people aren't, I don't know if you guys notice this, it's really quiet outside. There's not people banging on our doors begging to hear the gospel. They're not saying, please, please, what must we do to be saved? And Paul's acknowledging that. He's acknowledging, he says, not all have faith that the people aren't begging to hear the word. Because of sin, many will be hostile. Sometimes all of us, myself included, have a major panic attack because of the hostility of people we're trying to share the gospel with. And Paul was saying to us over and over again, as Jesus did, don't be surprised. Nothing has changed. The gospel will always elicit hostility. Keep preaching it anyway. Keep proclaiming it anyway. And then Paul puts all of these needs that he has for the word to speed ahead, for hearts to be receptive, to, to have uh, power over those who would resist it. He says, but the Lord is faithful and he will establish you and guard you against the evil one. And we have confidence in the Lord about you that you are doing and will do the things we command. They are still being persecuted there in Thessalonica. They're, they're still being persecuted. Some are hostile and don't have faith. As, as Paul said, times are tough. But with that, in one side of the balance scales, the other side is this. God is still faithful. In the middle of all that garbage, God is still faithful. He will never leave them, never forsake them. They're the ones he chose, and he's going to protect them from every fiery dart the devil hurls their way. In fact, Paul is so confident in God's unfailing love for them that he has great confidence that the fruit of of that love, that choice, will be obedient lives. Obedience is always the fruit of true salvation. It's often imperfect. We know that. I've already admitted that. We find unfaithfulness in us way too often. It's often imperfect, but it's always what real believers produce. Obedience is always what real uh, believers produce in progressively greater degree, proving that the Spirit is sanctifying us. I've told you this before, it's, I'll probably tell you a thousand more times, but sometimes you can get discouraged. You look um, ahead of you and you see the, the lack inside of you and go, man, I've got so far to go. I've got so far to go. And I'll tell you, anytime you do that, just go like this and go, oh my goodness, I've come a, far, a long way. I've come a long way. Yeah, you're not where you want to be, but how many of you would testify with joy that you're not where you were? Amen. Paul prays once more for the Thessalonians. May the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God and to the steadfastness of Christ. He wants them to always remember the love of God. Why does he say that, to direct their hearts to the love of God? Because let me let you in on a little secret. Especially those of you who are trying to earn something from God because of your great morality. Or those of you who 
tend to like to judge others because of their lack of morality by your perception. I'm telling you, when we, when we think first about the rules of God, we will quickly forget the love of God. We'll, we'll quickly forget it. But did you know that just the opposite is true? When we think of how much the Lord Jesus loves us and what he's done to purchase us and how he chose us before the foundations of the earth, we're going to want to please him by keeping his commands. Focus on his love, you're more likely to keep his commands. Focus on his commands, you're more likely to forget his love. Focus on his love. May the Holy Spirit draw your hearts this morning to the love of Christ. He also wants them to know the endurance of Christ. Because knowing what Christ endured for our salvation enables us to persevere. This is the message of Hebrews chapter 12. It says, therefore, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin that which clings to us so closely. And let us run with endurance, there's that word, the race that, will, that, that is set before us. How do we do that? Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and he's seated at the right hand of the throne of God. We like Jesus, can look at all that we're enduring. And when we consider the love of God that secures us and the endurance of Jesus that rescued us, we can say, okay, I'm going to endure like Jesus. Jesus did it for the joy that was set before him. And you can look at those three stages of, of uh, sanctification. You could say, I've been sanctified, I'm being sanctified, and praise God, I will be fully sanctified perfectly, completely someday. And you can say, that's joy. And for the joy that is set before me, I will endure the cross and glory in, in my fellowship and the sufferings of Jesus. Go look to the love of God. Look to the endurance of Jesus. If I could have my communion workers come forward, we're going to pray and we're going to receive communion today. And I want to remind you that, that it is, just as I said, that, that Jesus Christ endured the cross so that you who were chosen before the foundation of the earth, that that, that choice could be made manifest in you. And you, you, could, you could become part of his body and part of his kingdom and it, and it cost what these elements represent this was not this was not a, a a costless sacrifice that jesus made but he took his own precious body and surrendered it up for evil men to lash and to pierce and to and 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 to strike and to curse and to mock and to a, a crown with thorns and, and, and pierce his hands and feet and, 
and, and thrust a spear into his precious side. His blood poured out of that broken body. And in pouring out of that broken body, you were redeemed. The God who chose you before the foundations of the, uh, of the earth bought you at the cross. He chose you, he picked you out, and then he paid for you. And he paid for you in full. You're not, you weren't bought on credit. You were paid for in full by the blood and the body of the Lord Jesus. And aren't you glad this morning? Aren't you glad? Let's go ahead and stand up. Paul says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And so, Lord, we come and we give thanks. We give thanks for your choosing. We give thanks for your calling. We give thanks for your resurrecting and regenerating. We give thanks for your sanctifying. And, Lord, we recognize in remembrance, as your word calls us to remembrance, that none of this was possible. Had your beautiful, precious, holy, sacred body not been destroyed, been battered, been pierced, had not your lifeblood flowed freely, none of this would be possible. And yet, for the joy, the joy of adding men and women, boys and girls to your family, to your kingdom, to the perfect, harmonious fellowship of the Trinity, to that joy, and for that joy you endured, kept going. We thank you for that, Lord Jesus. Thank you for that. Lord, many of us today are faced with trials, faced with hardship, sickness, lack. Father, I ask that you would, as we struggle with those things this week, that you would remind us of your endurance, Lord. And the knowledge of your choice, the knowledge of your work, the knowledge of your sacrifice would cause us to endure with you for the joy. And that part of our joy would be in the fellowshipping of your suffering so that we might know the power of your resurrection. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.